Hey, it's Sarah, and I wanted to remind you about one of the best podcasts that ESPN offers, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Twice a week, Bo offers his take on the latest happenings in both sports and culture. Listening will absolutely, definitely make you smarter. Check out The Right Time with Bomani Jones wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Matt Quinn, and my dilemma is that my favorite pair of socks I can see are slowly becoming unthreaded. Okay, well... Socks coming unthreaded. I don't want to take your dilemma lightly, but I feel like a good pair of socks is about the easiest to replace. Every year I basically buy a new pack of those extra fuzzy ones that are a little bit less cozy after 10 or 11 washings, and I, I buy the new pack. I revel in the newness of them. Um, I think you should just do that. I feel more empathy for you if it was an all-time sweatshirt that lost its waistband elastic or a sweater that your mom knitted that was coming unraveled, but... You know, I'm sorry about the socks. I am, but I think you're going to get through this. Just Google plush socks. Get those fuzzy ones. You'll thank me later. That's what she said. I am super pumped for this week's episode and a chance to get to talk some music again. I love having musicians on the pod and talking about their songwriting process and their careers. I've mentioned before a bunch of times that my dream growing up was SNL or hosting Talk Soup back in the Greg Kinnear days. Uh, But I also thought about as a kid a lot being on Broadway and singing because my parents used to take me to a lot of musicals growing up. Cats, Fan of the Opera, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, back when I was growing up, I sang songs from Les Mis and Sunset Boulevard. And uh, back in junior high, I you know imagined myself on Broadway as I was playing the rat in the Cricket in Times Square, one of the starring roles. I sang a solo about being a rat about town. Uh, I also had a solo as a one of the stars of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I was Violet Beauregard and sang about uh, wanting a ball and a party. Uh, But then in high school, it was really hard because plays were always the same time as sports. So I was in chorus. I was in the talent show, including uh, one year when I sang Donna Summer's Last Dance with a big giant brushed out hair and sparkly dress and high heels. And all my friends were dressed in 70s clothes dancing behind me. Um, so I was really into all that stuff, but trying to balance it with sports was tough. Even when, when I got to Cornell auditioned, uh, over the course of several days for an acapella group called nothing but treble, uh, not here comes treble like Andy on the office, but it was actually an acapella group called nothing but treble. Uh, anyway, after several days of auditions, I made the group and then they switched the schedule to all Saturdays when I had my track meets, um, but it, it probably wasn't meant to be anyway, because unfortunately, at the end of high school and into college, I started to struggle with nodes on my vocal cords. I got surgery on them, and it helped for just a short time. It kind of just reverted back to this, which is this low, raspy voice, um, a little too much partying, and I get the signature Spain party voice. So I don't think I would have been the next Whitney Houston. Uh, but singing was sort of off the table after I realized that my voice wasn't going to hold up. So now it's just karaoke. And if my voice is not holding up, then it's nothing but a G thing where I don't have to sing or hit the high notes. Um, But all of this is to say that music is super important to me. I have a tendency to cry at concerts when I get really happy and hear songs that I love. And live music is one of the things that I have missed the very most during the pandemic. And Mount Joy 
is the only real concert I've been to since the pandemic started. It was a drive-in show here in Chicago. Uh, so I figured it'd be fun to talk to the band's lead singer and guitarist, Matt Quinn, who I've sort of become internet friends with. I fell in love with their music just last year. And then uh, after following them on social and, and messaging, you know, realized that we stand for a lot of things, care about a lot of the same stuff, including sports. And so here we are, cutting it up like a couple of inches on a podcast Zoom. Um, if you don't already know Mount Joy, you will. They're really awesome. They're a five-piece indie rock band. They're based out of L.A., but their roots are in Philly. They debuted uh, pretty recently, 2016, with their single Astro Van, and then released their first album in 2018, did a bunch of festivals and tours over the last two years, including with the Lumineers, and released their second studio album, Rearrange Us, in June. And a song off that album, Strangers, is what introduced me to them. I saw them play it on Samantha B's show, Full Frontal, and immediately just started following them. Here's a little bit of that song. Well, I guess I have to fall in love with strangers Breath in your city like a fan And if our lives don't work, then we can change Lord knows we'll change Love will just like ton of fun talking to Matt. He's a diehard Eagles fan. Uh, we talked about the band coming together, writing music, touring, um, how he tracks his life in sports moments, music during COVID and all sorts of other stuff. I uh, can't wait to get back out and see them again and more live music. So hope you enjoy the convo. That's what she said. So I have bands and musicians on the podcast infrequently, not by choice, but by, uh, you know, the very nature of trying to reach out to musicians and get them to come on here and have them think it makes any sense at all to come on an ESPN podcast. Uh, but I'm super excited to have Matt Quinn from Mount Joy on because they're one of the rare groups that I heard one song on a TV show and immediately just became a massive fan of. And one of the things that I love is when you listen to one song and then you go listen to a bunch more and you like all of them. So very disappointing to fall in love with one song and then go listen to the rest of a band's work and be like, eh, guess it was just the one. But I heard Mount Joy on Full Frontal with Sam B, who I did not think would be a source of new music for me, but has been of late. And, um, and then somehow through the magic of the internet, started communicating with members of the band by a uh, posting about how much they they rocked. And so excited to have Matt here to talk about what it is to be uh, sort of meteoric, meteorically rising, I guess I'll say, band, and especially during COVID. Uh, Matt, let's go back to the beginning, because I want to hear about you growing up in Philly and kind of how you got into music in the first place. Well, first, thanks for having me. I feel bad for all those other artists that don't have sports to distract them, because it <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. Um, yeah, I grew up in um, Philadelphia area and uh, basically the band sort of me and a friend from high school sort of serendipitously met uh, out in L.A., not even necessarily chasing music, but that was sort of the genesis of the band. We were writing songs out there and um, and yeah, that was the beginnings of Mount Joy. 
But you and music, what did, did you get started on a specific instrument? Did you try all of them? How did you know that it was something that you wanted to really devote time to? You know, I think uh, I started on guitar. Um, I think I just was probably like so many other people that, you know, play guitar. I was playing guitar because I love to listen to music. I've always been a huge fan. And I still think of myself as like a fan of music first. Um, and I just... I think I was like, you know, there were a lot of people still are that were like so good at playing like, uh, you know, they would come in and just play the Led Zeppelin free, you know, uh, Stairway to Heaven solo or something. And, <laughs> and I was always like, man, how do you do that? Um, and I would try and just fail. And so then that's sort of how I started writing songs. I was like, well, I can't really do the thing where I copy Jimmy Page. So I'll just kind of do my own thing. And it kind of has worked out here. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, I read about you and um, and your bandmate, Sam Cooper, who is the other half of the original founding members. And you were actually friends with this younger brother, but uh, became sort of enamored with the the level of music that he was at when you went over to his house. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, like I said, I was writing songs about um, silly things. Uh, I've always kind of approached music trying to, be goofy and, and stuff like that and actually one of the songs we originally worked on was a uh, you guys have stink bugs do you, do you know what they yeah. are okay well they like took over when i was in high school and you know my, we were like bunkered down we thought it was the end of the world um and uh i was like writing songs about them and then i you know so i went over to um his brother's name is ben and uh he had like a little a way of recording songs which was really at the time like really the coolest thing in the world and so modern technology at the time <laughs> yeah totally and so i went over there and you know sam was his older is his older brother and he he played guitar and like he was like hey can i you know i think this song's pretty cool and i was like wow you know and he he jumped on and played some guitar on it and like just elevated the song so much that i was like okay well let's do another one and long story very short here we are kind of thing but you weren't a band in high school you hung out and you just messed around but you weren't you know putting together the dream of becoming musicians at that point yeah not really I mean you know we like I, I think part of it is that I was always playing acoustic guitar and we were kind of singer songwriters and you know in like our big public high school like there was a place for singer songwriters but we weren't going to win any battle of the bands with our poems uh, <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, so you went to Northeastern. What did you study there? I studied actually music. So I studied, uh, I started out doing like music technology, which was really cool. Um, but it was really like science based and it was like building sounds from, you know, basic sine waves and, and really cool stuff for like, you know, a lot of those guys went on to do like, you know, sound programming for video games and, and all kinds of cool stuff and, and film and TV. But it just wasn't for me. It was too. It was too um, sciencey, and and um, and so I, I, I scooted over into what they had a thing called music industry. Um, it didn't help that I was getting bad grades, so I was like, let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, lower the uh, the bar here. So uh, I went over and I sort of switched into this thing that was called music industry. It was kind of like a music and business degree. It was fun. It was great. I, I had I you know some I really met. A uh, professor there specifically, a couple professors there that, you know, heard my music and really uh, empowered me to to continue to write and try to make it a career. So I'm super grateful for Northeastern. 
but in the end, you went to law school. So at that point, were you thinking, I'm going to take this business industry and maybe represent bands as a lawyer? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I actually, you know, in college, I, I wrote the song Silver Lining, which, um, you know, ended up being on the first Mount Joy record. And I was playing around, I was trying, you know, I was trying to get my music out there, but it's hard. I mean, anyone listening to this that, you know, plays music or writes music knows that it's such a, you know, uh, there's there's such a luck component to it. And obviously, um, I, I, I was striking out, you know, I I was playing that song, which ends up working later in my life. But, you know, people people were complimentary, but it just wasn't wasn't catching on anywhere enough that you thought that, you know, you could make a career out of it. So I. I kind you were of playing like local gigs and stuff. Yeah, I was playing around Boston, and um, you know, maybe I think a little bit of traveling, but not really. Like we very, very small amount of success, and yeah, I just kind of pivoted. I, I really wanted to work in music. I, I, I had dedicated so much of my life at that point to music that I felt like I needed to be around it in some way. And, I got interested in, uh, which I still am, like, you know, intellectual property law surrounding music and, you know, with streaming and, and you know, the new frontier, a lot of the, the copyright laws feel like they're kind of antiquated and that there's a real need for people with fresh ideas and, and stuff like that. So I, I was pretty, pretty fascinated by that. And that's kind of what drove me to go down the law school path very briefly. Very briefly. At the at the same time, Sam, uh, the band's co-founder, who had been a killer on the guitar when you were younger, also went to law school, but finished it. Um, so you guys are kind of following the same path. Were you in touch at the time or not again until you both ended up in L.A.? Yeah, we were in touch. I mean, we were friends. He, he went to NYU um, and was like continued his I'm the cool older kid thing. He went to NYU and um, um you know, we stayed in touch. I would send him songs and, you know, um, stuff like that. But yeah, he went, he ends up going to law school and, and graduating. I think he was working uh, in Philadelphia at a, at a law firm. And yeah, so we, we had totally kind of gone the other direction and music had become more of like a hobby. And he actually, um, you know, was, was kind of hating working as a lawyer and decided to try to use his law degree, like in a bit more creatively, I guess. And so he moved out to Los Angeles for that reason. And he was working as an agent at the time that I was working kind of in the legal slash going to law school world. And we just would kind of commiserate about Mm -hmm. how much we hated both of those things. And yeah, I think sometimes you can hate something so much that you can create something cool to get yourself out of it. Well, it happens a lot in the sports world. There are a lot of sports reporters and analysts that call themselves recovering lawyers. Uh, probably not as many rock stars that are recovering lawyers, but um, funny to imagine uh, the debates that go on behind the scenes with the band when you've got two people very practiced in the art of uh, discussion and argument. Um, <laughs> so you, you end up going to LA actually because of your girlfriend, right? And so it was not even necessarily an artistic choice, but you, you end up there reconnect with Sam and how long into that reconnection was Astro Van and the realization, okay, maybe we should actually go for this. Yeah. I think it was about a year. There was a, there was like a lag a little bit uh, between when Sam came out and when I was out there, but you know, once I got out there, um, one thing that I can say, I, I really like Los Angeles and it gets a bad rap. I'm from 
you know, the East Coast. And so you hear kind of, I think you hear the New York version of LA, which New Yorkers love to talk trash. Um, and so I'd heard I all these. I would take LA over New York any day. I lived in LA for six years. I never lived in New York, but live, going there for a week is long enough for me to say I'll take open spaces to bodegas. Oh, me too. But, you know, I love New York too. But uh, yeah, you just get, it just got such a bad rap. And I got out there and felt really inspired by um, just so many people like myself, like so many young, as you you know, from being out there, just so many young people that are doing it, despite so many people telling them, oh, what are you going to go to Hollywood and be famous or whatever? And they're like, yeah, you know, like that. <laughs> and that, there's a cool energy about that, even though most of them, you know, probably won't make it. I think there's so, so, such a cool energy. I was meeting people who were, um, who were trying to be musicians or, or, you know, be, be actors or, um, work in TV and, and all these exciting things. And I'd never met people with that kind of ambition, um, out where I'm from. So, you know, Sam and I were, were around that. And I think that that was, that was really the start of it. We, we, we kind of dug our heels in and it makes you believe a little bit. So you talked about making songs that are sort of goofy and writing about the stink bugs. I wouldn't say Astrovan is goofy, but it's certainly quirky. Um, I want to play a little bit of it, but first kind of explain where the genesis of Jesus driving like a VW van and smoking a doobie comes from. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's exactly what I was just talking about. I mean, I, I was around all these people who were really going for it and not necessarily making it. Um, but you know, you're going to their little shows and stuff like that. And, um, and you just feel this sense of like, you know, we're doing the right thing, you know, maybe we're not making tons of money or something like that or, or chasing, um, you know, financial comfort, but we're doing this whole other thing that felt really good. Like it felt right to be, um, to kind of drop out of law school after six weeks, you know, I, I think... <laughs> it felt right. And, um, that's what that song is about. It was a joke between myself and my girlfriend at the time. Like, you know, uh, I was like, Hey, you know, uh, neither of us are particularly religious, which is kind of some hilariousness has ensued writing a song right. about Jesus, not being particularly religious, but, right. um, but the joke was like, you know, uh, I may not be rich and famous if I do this, but you know, Jesus, he was pretty popular and he was apparently a carpenter. So, you yeah. know, like he probably drove this van and I, I kind of created this like probably very sacrilegious version of, um, <laughs> of Jesus. And, and, uh, yeah, it was just a joke, you know? And, and then, um, the song sort of kind of started to come together and it was one of those things where I actually played it for someone. I remember at, uh, little sports thing here. I, uh, there was a guitar. At, uh, I went and I watched that first Pacquiao Mayweather fight. Mm -hmm. Were there two? There was only one, right? I don't know. I think there was, I try to ignore both of those people for different reasons. Um, but I think there was just the one and they acted like there was going to be another, but I think it was just one. Okay. Well, that's probably for the best. It was very boring, but the, uh, but the, anyways, I remember just weird sports thing. I, I, I date my life in sports cause I try to exist inside of that world rather than the other one that's happening right now. Yeah, but, um, but, um, I was at the Pacquiao Mayweather fight with a bunch of friends in Los Angeles and there was a guitar there and someone was like, you know, playing a, a song or something. And I was like, Oh, I have this funny song. And I played Astrogan, I remember. And they were like, what the, 
you know, people were like really into it. And I was like, what do you mean? And uh, that was like the first time that I, I thought, okay, well, I might really have something here because I just got a bunch of boxing fans to like really enjoy my poetry <laughs> Jesus here. <God>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I don't know if, if that dates it, but that, that, that oh, was like the that's, time. That's great. Um, and it is funny because even in hearing it, it's a song about Jesus, but there's a whole part about, you know, maybe you're famous in heaven. Maybe there is no heaven. Maybe, you know, we're all alone together, uh, which kind of reveals potentially a, a slight bit of doubt about whether or not Jesus uh, is exactly uh, is exactly who we're told. Anyway, um, here's a little bit of, of that song. Says, son, you're famous in heaven. Maybe you're famous in heaven. Okay, so so you reach out to Sam and you say, "Hey, I just played this song, and a bunch of boxing fans were into it. So I think we should take it on the road and sell it to Spotify and see what happens." Or how does that happen that you decide to release it to the world? Yeah, you know, to be fair, I think I think I was at Sam's apartment, so uh, I think he he was he was, he, he was in on <laughs> he was in on it at that point. You know, we were already playing together um, when it, when I moved out to LA and when he was out there. I, I really didn't have. Um, you know, obviously I knew my girlfriend at the time, but I, I didn't have many friends out there. So, you know, once you got out there, part of what made Mount Joy was that it was great to have like someone from my hometown that, you know, knew, knew me well. And so I, we were hanging out a lot and playing guitar a lot. So, yeah, I mean, where it went from there is kind of like such a blur, but we, Mm -hmm. we basically started, you know, realizing we had a few other songs at the time. Um, and all songs from the first record we had like jenny jenkins and sheep which are other songs from the first record and we basically decided that we we had to record them in some way and long story very short we really didn't know like any bassists or drummers that we felt comfortable like approaching i've always been kind of like you know shy about my music and stuff like that so we literally just went on craigslist (laughs) and um we we kind of like yeah, we basically found our bassist Michael, who's still our bassist. And he, dated. You speed dated, or did you did you go through Weirdos first before you got to him, or was he the first hit? You know, it's funny we didn't. Like Michael was the first hit, but it's it's wow. partially because you can kind of, uh, in my experience, many years ago at least, you can kind of uh, you can tell who's a weirdo on Craigslist. You know, it's yeah, like it's, sure. there's just yeah. a weirdo film about their email. It's like they're covered in their own weirdness. Um, and uh, Michael was like a normal job interview email. Like he sent a link to his previous work and, you know, right, like, like <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, this guy is legitimate. And there weren't many other legitimate requests. So, um, yeah, we, 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 you know, we decided to go jam with him and it went really, really well. And it was one of those things where, you know, like I said, I'm not sure where I, where I fall in the spiritual realm, but you know, he was like, hey, I've got a friend who is who's his roommate um, who, you know, produces music and he'd love to record us and we can get it all done. And he's great. And, and it turns out to be this super talented guy who, um, you know, we're going in in March to record more music with in 2020. So, um, yeah, so it just worked out really well. And in terms of the Spotify thing, once we made the recordings, um we started showing them to people and people would just 
you know, there was just an excitement about what we had made and um, we just got super lucky. You know, we, we, we were around the right people. Um, I had befriended some music managers and stuff like that, just kind of, I think in this beautiful way where they didn't think I wanted anything from them because I was just looking for friends. And so then when I had this music, I showed it to them and they were like, you make music, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And they, they, they really helped me out. And, and one of them is, you know, my, our manager currently Jack and awesome. Yeah. So long story short, they, they delivered it to Spotify and the rest was history. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I still don't know 100% how Spotify works. Like I, I saw that you kind of take a look at the response to it and that helps you decide, okay, let's quit our regular jobs and really do music. Are you actually making money because of those streams or does it just tell you that people like it? Definitely not making a lot of money because of those streams. Um, but <laughs> which brings us back to the conversation about music rights and needing some new fresh minds on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll plead the fifth on that, but the, right. uh, but, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I, I think really, like you said, it was just the groundswell of, I, I was doing law school night classes at that time. And we, I think we, we put Astrovan up, uh, and I think it went viral within the Spotify system, like pretty much right away. And I was just like on pins and needles kind of thing. You know, I was like, was like sick to my stomach almost. I was like, this is bad, but also great. But also what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it was just this real rush. And, um, I, I, I feel like we weren't making money, but it felt like this thing where, you know, thinking back to the, the Craigslist thing and things were just working out. Like it was like, it was this weird moment in, in my life where, um, you know, and I, I think of myself actually, which is weird, but I, I do think of myself as like an unlucky person, you know, like I'll step in the puddle kind of thing. <laughs> I'll get the bird poop on my pants. But right. like, so when like 10 things work in a row, you're, you're kind of like, wait a minute. And it was just one of those things. So it wasn't like there was money coming in, but it just felt like it was going to work. There was a, there was a real vibe around everything we were doing. And so we really just went for it despite financially it being a very stupid decision. Um, <laughs> and so far, it's working. No out. risk it, no biscuit, man. Hey, exactly. That's, that's the way it goes. Um, you mentioned Sheep being on that first album and that you had written it actually back um, in Philly area around Freddie Gray and some other um, really sad and, and tragic incidents. That's very um, different than your goofy stink bug songs or even Astro Van, but you do have songs like that in, your, in the mix. Um, how does something come across your world and then inspire you to make music that way? That's a totally different vibe than the fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I think I don't really know what the magic is of like making a song, but you know, you just get inspired by something or, or something makes you laugh or cry or whatever it is. And, um, and you kind of dive into this world. I mean, it's hard for me. I think that the song sheep sort of created a, uh, maybe an expectation that we would write songs about what was happening in the world. And, and I would love to do that. Like I would love to write songs about, you know, what's happening that I, that I disagree with, um, so much of what's happening, I guess. Um, but it's hard, like, because I, I think that song just, kind of came to me and, and it's out there and I stand behind it and I 
I hope that people stop following these ridiculous ideologies blindly. But, um, but I, I've even on this record, like I've tried to write songs about, you know, what's happening and Black Lives Matter and all these things. And, you know, the last thing I want to do is write like an on the nose, like right. um, something that seems like I'm trying to take advantage of what's happening or something like that. Like, I, so with those songs, like it just sort of happened, you know, it, it, it felt organic. And I was writing about this Freddie Gray situation, which was just so sickening to me and that I think I was inspired at the time. And and not to say that there wasn't a huge movement then, because I, I, I think that there was, but I think that it's become this global thing that is, there's so much awareness around that it makes it harder for me to feel authentic um, writing about it as a white person who might be seen as someone who's trying to take advantage of the situation now. So I find it very difficult actually to, to write about that particular thing, uh, particular substance now, but, um, but in terms of like how it happens, I, it just has to be organic for me. It has to be like, you know, visceral, something happens and then it, it translates into a good song. So there's so many steps that have to happen that, you know, I don't know if we'll continue to do that, but, but hopefully I get inspired like that and something feels powerful enough. It's interesting. I just watched that Bee Gees documentary and they said almost the exact same thing. Like the song just comes to you. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It just arrives. And it, and I, I remember reading about Dolly Parton writing Jolene and I will always love you in the same night. And I'm like, I mean, that's it. That's like something just happens and then it drops right inside you and you're like, all right, I'm putting it down. Um, but I love that. You know what else I was watching the other day that I wanted to ask you about is, um, do you watch Song Exploder on Netflix? I've watched one of them. I watched the Dua Lipa one, but I, okay. I and I, I've listened to the podcast, like you know, out on the road and stuff like that. But but yeah, I, I should watch more of them. I didn't watch the Dua Lipa. I watched the REM and then the Nine Inch Nails and the Killers. But um, when they were asking Trent Reznor about Hurt, one of the things that he said was he doesn't actually like to tell people the meaning of his songs because he likes the idea that people can take whatever meaning it is for them. And I get that. Like I totally, of course, why would you limit the ways that somebody can connect to a song by telling them exactly what it is? But it also made me mad because I always want to know what musicians or poets or writers are thinking about in the way that they, um, in the way that they write. So how do you feel about the preciousness of what inspired you versus what people take away from it? You know, I think there's probably two things to that. One is more magical and it's like, you know, it's true. You know, I think, I think that people come to you and they tell you these things, they get tattoos of our lyrics and like things like that. And you don't want to like tell them, actually, the song is about this. And they're like, are you kidding me? I'm showing her like my, my wrist right now, but like, <laughs> you know, um, they got tattooed this other meaning or something, but right. I think there's that, but I do think that a huge part of it. And I've, I've, read interviews from Bob Dylan. And, and like you said, uh, it sounds like Trent Reznor maybe has this a little bit where it's like a lot of the best things I feel like that I've written, I didn't have like a specific meaning. It's just this, like you're sitting with your instrument and you feel this, yeah, like this just draw to, it's almost like a stream of consciousness out of your mouth. It's like, and, and the words sort of don't necessarily attach to anything. So when you when it all comes out and then there's this process of arranging it and it's sort of like editing i imagine like i've never edited a film so i don't know why i would say it's like editing a film but it's like editing something you know and you sort of start parsing it down and trying to make sense of what just came out and in that process you can make you know sort of obvious sense or metaphorical sense of something but 
I think the the sort of non-magical answer is that most of the time I have no idea what the song's about, <laughs> you know? And so it becomes about whatever you think it becomes about. Right. And, yeah. and, and I think, so it's a little, there's two sides to it. That's kind of wild too, because, um, I was basically a poetry minor. I was one class short of it because I wasn't intending it or needing the, mi the minor for any reason. So I love poetry, but I'm also from a family of lawyers and I'm very logical and analytical. And so the idea of writing a song and being like, oh, I'm not really sure what it's about, like would drive me insane. But I also love that because it does allow, like you said, for people to take these things from it that, that mean so much to them. Um, even if that wasn't what was intended. One of the songs you have talked about, kind of the thing that inspired it, was um, Cardinal. And it was about Eagles games and tailgating. And I, now that you've said that you wrote Silver Lining a while ago, was th that's not connected to Silver Lining's playbook. Because I was at your show and I was thinking, wait, is this a is this an Eagles connection to that movie? No, no, there's no connection. I, I felt like Bradley Cooper, he owes me. I feel like yeah, he probably was listening to the tune. <laughs> yeah, no, um, but no, and yeah, I, I that song came before, and I obviously I love that movie as an Eagles fan. But yeah, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I'm a huge sports fan, like embarrassing level sports fan. I really try to hide away in that world, and um, yeah, I grew up going to the games. I was fortunate enough to like to go to a bunch of Eagles games growing up, and we developed this whole kind of group. I'm sure listeners you know, sports fans out there have the same thing, like developed this almost family, like extended family of Eagles fans and Silver Lines Playbook kind of, you know, I guess um, shows this, but uh, you know, we would go to the games and tailgate together. And like most of us don't even go into the game. We just go tailgate and, and hang with each other and, you know, talk crap on other NFC East opponents and whatever it is that we do. And, and then, and then, you know, I went off to college and, and that song was just about like, you know, in the moment you don't realize that you have this like really special group. And, uh, yeah, it was just sort of about in general, I, I, uh, moving away from home and, and, and realizing like, man, all those like things that I did were so weird and cool and amazing. And those people are special people. So, yeah. Uh, I was just reading an interesting article that talked about the less recognized things we've lost during the pandemic. And one of them was the really uplifting interactions with people that are not close friends. And it used the example of going to a sports bar and having people that you might kind of know their name, but you just kind of see them every Saturday when they go there to watch your college team, or maybe someone that you would occasionally run into and take a walk with during lunch break around the building or something, and how it's easy to keep in touch with the really close people. But what we're missing is also meeting new people and introducing ourselves to new people. And then also those kind of cursory outsiders that that actually mean a lot to us. And uh, it's interesting how yeah you kind of step away from that, whether because you go on to college or because of a global pandemic. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, I'd like a word. My favorite word, I'm gonna go with story. Ah, story, that's a good one. Um, dates back to 1200, a connected account or narration of some happening. Originally, it was narrative of important events or celebrated persons of the past from the French histoire and from late Latin storia or historia. As a musician, my guess is that storytelling is a huge part of the meaning that you find in the work that you do. Um, story. It's a good one. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. My word of the week is actually inspired by storytelling. 
that I'm seeing on the show Bridgerton. Are you guys watching this? Okay, I started a few weeks ago. I only made a couple minutes in and I stopped because it seemed like something that you have to watch really carefully and pay attention to. And I have a tendency to multitask while I'm watching television. But then enough people said that I had to see it. And I lasted long enough into the first episode to see The Duke. And that was that. Now I'm watching the show. Just watch. I promise you. Man, woman, gay, straight, no identifiers whatsoever. If you are a human being, maybe even an animal, you will not be able to resist the charms of the Duke. Which brings me to the word. Concupiscence. Ardent desire. Improper or illicit desire. Lustful feeling. Mid-14th century from the Old French and Late Latin. In a sentence, well, if you live alone, beware of watching too many episodes of Bridgerton, lest a previously undesirable neighbor become the beneficiary of your resulting concupiscence. Thankfully, I'm married, so I do not have that problem. But beware. All right, let's get back to the interview. All right, let's get back to your incredible rise. So a year after basically you record some of those songs and start showing them to people you're on Conan, right? It's that quick. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we still make, we still make jokes about how scared we were to play Conan. Um, we were horrified. He had a massage chair in the green room and we were like vibrating in the back, like in the, in this massage chair, just horrified. Um, it was, it was surreal, but it was cool. He seems awesome. He was cool. It was actually um, right before the Eagles. I told you I date my whole life in sport. Yeah. But it was it was right before the Eagles played the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And he's a huge Patriots fan. And I was mortified to even speak to this man. But when he came around, like something came out of my mouth about the Patriots and the Eagles yeah. or something. And he it, it was I just remember he uh, like mockingly did this like go Eagles like thing that he you know in his Conan yeah. voice that I just butchered yeah. but um, but it was, yeah I'll never forget that and, and then you know like two days later the Eagles beat the the Patriots in the Super Bowl so I was like I, I'll never see him again probably but if I do if you have you've got something to say to him yeah. it's funny how those sports allegiances will like sort of just pop out i remember i was heading into wrigley for a playoff game the cardinals were not involved in the game and john ham was there coming into the vip entrance wearing a cardinals hat and i just was like hey the cardinals aren't playing you can take the hat off and I'm like, what are you doing? why are you yelling at john ham like yeah just what are you like, going to do yeah i feel like for sports fans we like our awkwardness, like somehow, or I should speak for myself, my awkwardness, like comes out in sports converse. Like I just go to right. sports voice somehow. I don't know. It's just yeah, my, exactly. it's my security blanket. No, I mean, I think we all did. I heckled a baby on a train once in a Chargers onesie that was headed to a Bears Chargers game in San Diego. And I was like, <laughs> I just heckled a baby. Um, okay. So you end up on Conan and, um, Silver Lining. We, we talked about that song. Um, actually let's play a little bit of that song right here. But if it's the drug. Okay, so that ends up number one on the Billboard Adult Alternative chart. Um, and that song was sort of had some some dark undertones that inspired it as well, right? Yeah, um, I, I wrote that song in college. Um, 
I went away to college and um, a couple of my friends from my hometown passed away from, from like, you know, drugs. And um, it was just a rough time, you know, went, went through a, a tough patch. And that was a song sort of like Sheep, where it just like, you know, you're just sitting in this moment and song just sort of kind of arises from that low or whatever it is. And um, yeah, I mean, so, and it, it, I think what's cool about that is that you're not trying to connect it to this radio success. I mean, it was written, you know, a, I don't know, five, six years before I ever really had a career in music. So I think traveling around the country and, you know, you people have given me like their sobriety tokens and all these just cool connections to people that I couldn't have imagined. And it's just, it's been a cool song for us. And it's got to be wild. I mean, I think about this a lot with artists that become sort of legendary and are still performing their hits like 60 years later. Uh, one of the most magical moments was I saw Stevie Nicks at Ravinia here in Chicago and she was saying landslide. But beforehand, she said that the man she wrote it for who had helped her decide to stick with music and keep at it was in the crowd and had come to that show that night. And I was like, like you've been singing this song for decades and decades and this emotional connection to this person who had helped bring that music out of her and that they still were friends and that he was there was just like wild. But also thinking about how do you eventually disassociate when you've played it enough times or when you play that, are you still like, holy shit, I'm playing a song I wrote in my college dorm room to all these people. And like, for instance, if you played it now in 2020, and you're singing, tell the ones you love, you love them. And it has a totally different meaning than maybe it did before, but it all like ties those moments for you together. That's gotta be wild. Yeah, it is weird. I, I think like the best shows, like if I'm, if I'm being honest, I, I sometimes, you know, your mind goes to, if you played the song a bunch of times, your mind goes to God knows where, but I think the best shows are when you're able to like tap into, you know, the original energy that brought you that song and, try to do that. I try to like, you know, make sure that I'm, when I'm saying, singing those things that I, I'm feeling them too. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's difficult, but I think that that's, you know, if you're singing a funny song, like you should try to have like a little bit of a goofy vibe to what your, your, your energy is. So try to tap into it, but it, it, it is hard sometimes just the monotony of doing it so many times within a tour, but uh, if you uh, like places, cer certain cities bring that out too. Like I was thinking like, you know, we, we played in Chicago and just like some of these towns that really, it's like, a, it's like sports, you know, if the crowd is, is feeding you and you feel the, the energy, then it's much easier to get into those things and really feel confident about, you know, doing the things that make your performance the best. Well, if you're already sick of it, you're in trouble because you're 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 just getting started, man. You're going to have decades of, uh, of playing them. Um, I hope so. I was... I was reading interviews with uh, some of you, you and your bandmates about sort of uh, becoming quote unquote rock stars in the last couple of years. And I loved the interview about touring. One of you said you needed almonds and apple cider vinegar. And the other said kind bars. And I was like, is this a rock band or are you like Greenpeace volunteers? So is this like, <laughs> is this like the requirements to stay healthy or is this like you admitting that you're not the stereotypical rock band? That's like, I mean, right now you can't rage because even if you want wanted to like you can't like hang out with fans and stuff with that with the covid stuff but um is, is that a peek into who you guys are is almonds and uh apple cider vinegar 
I think that's probably a pretty good peek into who we are. I, I, if I'm being honest, but you know, we, 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 there's so many funny stories of us kind of learning how to tour and like, you know, we, I think try to be the, at times, you know, we, we definitely have a good time and, and stuff like that, but it's hard. I, I think like, you know, if you're throwing up on the side of the bus, I'm not saying that that's ever happened, but if you're throwing, not. if you're throwing up at the side of the bus at two in the morning and then you've got to do a radio interview at 6am and then the next day you have to be somewhere else, it, it just doesn't add up. You know, it just, it, it can make your life really miserable, really, really fast. So, or you just start heavily doing drugs to where the whole thing is just a and downward spiral of death. But Blur. like, yeah, so we, we take no uh, shame in saying that we really try to stay healthy and we have a great time. We have such a great group and we're, we're all really close and we have so much fun, but we definitely almost challenge each other to like stay healthy and, and exercise and do the things that like, you know, we want to put on good shows. Like that's our goal. Like it's not, you know, if, if we were the first hundred shows, maybe we had our fun and now we're in the like, hey, let's like be the best, you know, and yeah. As a sports fan too, like, you know, you, you watch the way the best people prepare and, 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 um, they're not just anymore, at least getting drunk and going out there. And, um, right. I'm not saying I'm doing like the LeBron keto diet or anything like that, but, <laughs> but, uh, if we can find a whole foods over a subway, we'll do that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's wild how the, the Rolling Stones are essentially like embalmed at this point and they still crush. Like it, you, it, that's, that's gotta be like a completely another set of natural gifts is to be able to rage for that long and still be good. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you got to put in enough of the good stuff before you start to try to, to be the, the band that, that parties, because if the, if the quality isn't good, you never, you never get to be, uh, be out there and, and keep at it. Um, you mentioned the group. Uh, Jackie is the only gal in the crew. Uh, how's that dynamic? As someone who works in a male-dominated industry and is used to being the only gal in the room, how did you find her? And 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 was there any trepidation about like we can't have a girl cooties? Uh, um, no, no trepidation. You know, she. Uh, we found Jackie through uh, through a, a friend of actually it was a, another one of Michael's roommates. Was we we actually had a piano player who. Um, just decided that the touring wasn't for him and very abruptly we uh, just kind of left the band and we were we had a lot of dates you know that we needed to play and um, Michael's roommate was like hey I just jammed with this um, woman who is incredible you should give her a call and um, thank god we did you know she's Jackie's uh, the reason for no trepidation is you know just kind of talent that just you know, you don't, you don't think about stuff like that when you, when you hear someone that talented and, um, it's just been, it's been good. I mean, I think, uh, you know, she, she's just, uh, one of the true, like, in my opinion, greatest piano players that are doing it right now. Um, and she's in terms of like the, the guy thing, I, I, you know, you, I don't want to speak for her, but, she she just is so focused on she she's the most like dedicated she practices like you know the rest of us are like sleeping on the bus and she's trying to find a piano to get her practice in and um she's just incredible so i i think in terms of it's it's us really trying to catch up to her i, I don't think she yeah. has any issues with us 
Let's talk about the music making, because obviously a lot of your early stuff was just you in college and and then Sam um, working with you on some stuff. Is it are you mostly writing um, and is and do you start with lyrics or do you start with music or now is it more collaborative with all five of you? You know, um, it kind of depends. The, the um, A lot of the songs kind of come from um, a skeleton of like me sort of starting out with this, maybe me and acoustic guitar rough idea that maybe in the end sounds very little like the song that gets recorded um, or is the exact same thing, you know? So it really kind of depends. Um, uh, the second record was pretty, uh, probably the most collaborative in that the first record, uh, a lot of the people didn't exist. They were still Craigslist emails away from us uh, before right. the songs were made. The I second that it was Craigslist. <laughs> like none of you got stabbed unless that's a story that you just didn't tell. <laughs> yeah. I haven't gotten stabbed yet. It's a long game for Michael. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, the second one was a little more collaborative. You know, we had, we had toured together. Um, and so, a lot of the ideas were coming out during sound checks and stuff like that. And, um, and then this third one, um, which we're making now and, and hopefully starting to record soon. Um, it's been a little bit different. I mean, it's sort of kind of back to the roots. I'm, I'm excited to hear some of the ideas from the other band members, but COVID, you know, a lot of, a few of them live in LA and COVID has just gotten so bad in Los Angeles and so just tragic. But one of the like, lowest consequences i guess is that you know we haven't really been able to get together and um we've been sharing ideas voice notes and stuff like that but really really excited about it because i think in a way it took us back to our roots of just like making sure these found the foundations of the songs are, are really really strong and and then we'll get together and i'm excited literally in a couple of weeks here to build upon that yeah, I had Stone Gossard of um Pearl Jam on the podcast and he was on to talk about a side project and they wrote the entire album from different cities during COVID, which is just wild to me. So you're doing pieces now, but you're you're still hoping to actually be together to record and and put it all together. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the magic for us is we've played so much together. You know, we're we're a team. Like we're not to constantly relate it to sports, but like we really are a team. And like um, at some point, we have to get together and sort of put our heads together on these songs, but at least for us, I, th I, th I think that would just create the best thing. And it's an important moment for us. I, I, I think like going to relate it to sports here because that's all I've got. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think I, 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 I'm a big Sixers fan and I feel like the Sixers are in a similar spot where it's like, you know, had some success, but certainly there's a, there's a much higher ceiling, I think for them, if, if they, if they can achieve it. And we feel that way too. We feel like we have a lot to prove. So definitely don't want to like, you know, mail this one in. So we, I feel like we have to get together and, and hopefully we make something great. I first saw you guys on uh, Full Frontal and it was one of the performances during COVID where she pretended to go into her, I think music shack is what she called it. And a lot of those that we're seeing on shows now with bands are disparate pieces. Everyone's in their own box, wherever they are. Take me through how that works. Does everyone record everything separately and then layer them on top of each other? And what's in your ears is just the, the beat or whatever it is. Uh, it's never actually people playing together, right? I've heard of, like, I don't want to say never. I think mostly never is the short answer, but I've heard, and stuff. yeah, I've heard of like, imagine trying to play on like a zoom call. It just wouldn't work out. The, t the timing would be, it'd be like the band and animal house marching into the, would, everything would be jazz. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So usually it's the power of a click track, you know, a metronome, you, you figure out a, a, a tempo. That's the sort of, 
constant. And then um, you just build the track from there. Like, you know, I'll, I'll play the guitar to a metronome and then we'll add the bass. And then and I assume that that's how most bands are doing. I mean, you can also use like a drum machine, you know, where everyone plays to this synthetic drum machine or something right. like that. But for us, that's how we did it. We built it off of a click track. And then tell me about the drive-in shows. Uh, I read that you were worried that people would just honk the whole time, which at least the one that I went to, you're the only concert I think I've been to since last uh, February um, was that drive-in show here. And I'm sure it was kind of nerve wracking to have something brand new. Yeah. Thank you for coming, by the way. That was really cool for us. Um, I should say we're, we're fans, you know, I, I, we, we watch all sorts of ESPN programming and, my, one of my highlights this year was you doing Moira. That was like, it was <laughs> pretty you. incredible. Like we were, we, Sam and I were watching that and we were like kind of waiting for you to mess it up, you know, because it was like too, like it was really good. I, I was like, wow, that was incredible. <laughs> Hold up. We'll get right back to it, but quick aside. So if you have no idea what we're talking about here, I was Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek for the Around the Horn Halloween show this year. And in the past, I've been Freddie Mercury, Melania Trump, the progressive lady, Adele, Gardner Minshew. So I had a very high standard to uphold as the queen of the Halloween show. And I have to admit it, this year was my best. It was a very tough accent. It's entirely made up by the genius Catherine O'Hara. It's not a real accent. And after I committed to the character, told the producers, like ordered the costume, I started practicing and realized that I was absolutely going to embarrass myself. Like it was impossible but I started Googling. I found some people making notes about the things that she pronounces and why. I took some notes as I watched the show to get her tendencies. And then after I practiced long enough, you guys, I nailed it. Like, forget false modesty here. I crushed this. And not only should I have been on Saturday Night Live this past weekend with Dan Levy, I should be on Saturday Night Live permanently with this kind of talent. Here's a little bit of it. Plasma 3 from Schitt's Creek, star of the stage and screen, Moira Rose. Great. And you would be remiss not to mention my work on Sunrise Bay. <laughs> Did you get that sweater dress from David? Can you break down the Steelers and Ravens for us, Moira? Well, of course we should be scared of a team named the Steelers, but the Ravens are far scarier. When I was working on The Crows Have Eyes, Three the Crowing, I learned a thing or two about a very cosmopolitan family of Asin passerine birds that includes ravens and crows. And Tony, you may know that it is a murder of crows, but did you know it's an unkindness of ravens? <laughs> Well, I know how Cam is feeling. He's practically dripping with ennui. But I have to tell him, stop acting like a disgruntled pelican. We must pick ourselves up or he'll end up like my former castmate from Sunrise Bay doing ventriloquy at the youth rhinoplasty benefit everybody knows. Okay, enough of that. Back to the interview. So that was cool that you came. But the drive-in shows, you know, I, I think we were scared that they were gonna suck uh <laughs> to be completely honest with you and we feel like kind of precious about what we do live because we do think that we're a good live band and we think that um you know that that's important for us to show well especially in some of these big cities like chicago and um but it didn't suck you know it was cool because i think i think in the end people are so starved for that ability 
somehow safely to like get together and, and just do literally anything. Um, and like, you know, I was looking out in Chicago and people were like sitting around their cars and drinking beers and like, I feel like just doing that, like we, it was such a low bar that we felt like <laughs> this is fun. Um, yeah. And they were they, they, for, for the most part, they were all really great. That's, it was, it was necessary. It was so great just to just be outside and, and dancing. Um, my husband would not let all of us get on top of my car, even though I assured him it would be fine. And I pointed <laughs> to everyone else on top of their car and he was like, we're not getting on top, we're not getting on top of the car We're we can dance at the side. We're fine. Um, well, we're running out of time, but you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. What job do you do instead? Man, um, I want to be like a marine biologist or something with absolutely no background. The animals would be in big <laughs> trouble. Yeah, I took a class in college in that thinking like, this will be good. So, you know, it's easy science because I like dolphins. And then I was like, oh, shit, too much science. <laughs> Way too much science. Way too much math. Um, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, man. Um, probably like watching the ball bounce on the rim when Kawhi was fading into the audience. And I was like, that's going to go in, isn't it? And there was this sinking feeling. Oh, that's great. Uh, number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Man, uh, all I can think about right now is like what's going on in our world. If I could be the best, I'd be like the best peacemaker or something. And I would just, I would not, or like vaccine. I don't know what's good for the world right now. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, vaccine plant distributor planner would yeah, be good. I would just like just tell a lot of one day and tell everyone <laughs> what to do. Yeah. I would just tell a lot of these angry white people to take a nap or something and it would work and they'd wake that up feeling be- refreshed. <laughs> that would be a great one. I don't know what the job title is there, but I'll take it. Uh, number four, what current celebrity in music, politics, or TV would you most like to be your best friend? Hmm. That's a tough one. I feel like, uh, I feel like Joel Embiid though would be like a great best friend for me. Like, I feel like, you know, we would kind of be like this, you know, like the, what are those like cop movies where they're like two very disparate yeah. people, but it works yeah. somehow. I feel like that would work for us. Yeah, you guys would be a little like twins. I don't know how tall you are, so you're probably not Danny DeVito. Well, that's not going to work then. (laughs) (laughs) Too similar. Um, Number five, what's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Mm. You know, I really hate when people like file their nails in or around, not in me, oh my gosh, around me. (laughs) Well, I mean, that I would get. And I wouldn't say that's meaningless. I'd say that's important. Yeah, I would call the police. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, the, the sound of that like does something to my like my my whole existence starts vibrating and I, I can't. It just really sends me. It just gave me the shivers because it made me think of when people crease paper. Mm, yeah, that's not good either. But, uh, God, I hate it. Um, I've gotten distracted with the chills. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Mm, it probably like there was a show we played in um, in Phoenix and the sound it was sometimes these festivals they uh, they just don't 
have the ability to put the shows as many shows as they're trying to put on and they threw us up there there were a lot of people in the audience and they they the sound check was like this two minute line check thing and it just didn't work and there was there was nothing working and there was just sounds exploding and it it, it was like it was like something from a tv show and and they're just like you gotta go now And, and we were like really and they were like yeah and i was like okay and then we just tried and nothing worked and it was like and the crowd was kind of looking at us and i could see it in their dead eyes that they that wanted me <laughs> gone and i think uh it was a tough moment for me <laughs> it never got better the whole show i mean there was like a moment where i was able to cry for help but <laughs> i it, it, i would spend the whole show just touching my ear and being like guys can we can we yeah. To make sure the audience knew, like, this isn't what we sound like. This Everyone was already fault. plugging their ears, so there was nothing. It couldn't, it couldn't, it wasn't, no. Was this Innings Fest? Uh, no, this was, um, it was the M3 Festival, I think. Okay. Now, now they're going to, like, sue me or something, but. Yeah, well, I remember seeing you, you were on the lineup at one point for Innings Fest. I that was, was actually great. Before. I love Innings Fest. I think it was the year before I started going to those, so I missed out, but um, it's that's a great festival. Um. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, you know, I think probably just like, I I don't know, that's a hard one. Uh, there's so many musical related ones. I'd love to be a better musician, but I'd, I'd also just love to be more patient, I think, as a person. That's a good one. Um, number eight, any band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? I feel like party, I feel like the Grateful Dead, like in their prime, like that party would be weird and wonderful. Yeah. Would you remember it? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> Just be in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know. I, I played sports growing up and I think I really thought that I could like, turn that into something other than nothing and it was mostly nothing (laughs) what did you play (laughs) um i played like soccer and and i played um baseball and lacrosse and and i was pretty good at some of those things but like i said nothing doing now i just watch it from thousands of feet away as most of us do yeah uh number 10 what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you um, hopefully kind and then like a hyphen, not scary. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, and, um, funny. I don't know. Okay. Kind, funny and not scary. I like that. That's a good combo. Uh, and finally, who should I have on the podcast? Who's someone who's interesting and great and smart and fun and cool and would be good to have on? Hmm. Um, I don't know any of those people, but uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think um, if you're interested in like the whole Spotify world, I think there are some music managers who are are doing some cool stuff like our manager, Jack and Will Perleiter are like, as a guy who helped us out with some of the Spotify stuff in the beginning. And I mean, I don't know how interesting that would be, but they're, they're being very thoughtful about the future of music and, and interesting folks. Jack is with uh, C3 that you're with. Mm-hmm. I have a very random story about Charles Atoll. 
mm-hmm. who started C3. Yep. Uh, back in 2007, I had a weird adventure of going to the Bears Super Bowl, and I was trying to get a ticket, and I used eBay in a weird and strange way and it blew up. And then Charles emailed me out of the blue and was like, I really don't want you to get murdered by a stranger. So I'm just happy to give you a ticket to the game because I, I I just don't want anything bad to happen to you. And I was like, I already got one, but thank you so much. That is like the nicest thing. And then we became internet friends. And then he got me and my friend backstage passes for Lollapalooza for her birthday. And I just thought he was the nicest person. Like I'd ever met him or anything. And I just, it was so random. But whenever I see C3 now, I'm like, that company is run by an awesome, nice dude. Yeah. They've been good to us. I, I, you know, I'm a little bummed because my Eagles were in the Super Bowl and I, you know, (laughs) (laughs) there I was at a bar like everyone else. Perhaps you should have put yourself in a precarious and dangerous situation so that he would fear for your safety and then he would have offered you. Yeah, I didn't know he was so protective of her eBay scams. <laughs> it wasn't a scam at the time. It was brilliant. Uh, it hasn't aged well. People people don't look back on it fondly uh, the way that they should for my creativity. But um, anyway, it's funny. And I was just at a meeting with the other Charles secret meeting a couple months ago. So I'm all up in that C3 life. Wow. Uh, More so than me. Very strange. Very random. Yeah. If you ever need a meeting with those guys, let me know. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll hit sure. you up. Even touch. Um, this was really fun. Thank you for doing this. Um, say hi to Sam. I don't know how you guys, uh, Roshan Bode, who comes on here, but I know he sent me an Instagram message about something once too. So you, you both seem very cool. Uh, will do. And thank you so much for for having me. I really, really appreciate it. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something or share a story I read that I think you guys would like. Sometimes I'll share something you guys wrote me. Uh, whatever's on my mind. And uh, today what's on my mind is just a quick word about my ESPN colleague, Pedro Gomez, who died suddenly over the weekend. There are not many details. It was an incredible shock. He was just 58 years old. And I just wanted to share what an incredibly kind man he was, a great teammate, a great reporter, and he made everybody smile. He always had a smile on his face. Didn't seem like he ever had a bad day. He made everyone feel important and had a sort of presence that drew you in and always made you feel um, welcome and heard and respected. That's super important in this industry. In 2016, back when the Cubs were making their run to the World Series, he grabbed me champagne corks from the locker room after they won the pennant and the World Series, uh, knowing how much they would mean to me, which was super awesome of him. I am absolutely heartbroken for his family and for all of us that loved working with him, and he is already very missed. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 